Welcome to the Money Curious Podcast. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Essien. Money Curious is dedicated to bringing you the best financial content, whether you're a millennial, Gen Z, or even a boomer. If you want great wealth building tips, if you're looking into some side hustles, or even just knowing about different investment and debt pay down strategies, then this is the podcast for you. Now, before we get into today's show, I need you guys to do us a favor. Hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on all other major listening platforms and on Instagram at Money Curious Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Money Curious Podcast. This is episode 42 and today's guest is Adam Craig. He goes by Adam the Investor on Instagram and um, a little bit about him guys. He is a real estate investor. He has 61 doors. 61. He's been doing this for about nine years and has accumulated a very large portfolio, both in residential and commercial real estate. Yeah. Originally, when we started this podcast, you guys noticed we did a lot of real estate investing focused uh, episodes. Then afterwards, we switched a little bit to get some diversity in terms of the content we talk about. And then we went we wanted to go back to real estate. And Adam is the perfect person to talk to. Uh, in order to get back into the whole real estate conversation. Like Laura said, he has 61 doors. He does the burst strategy. You'll learn a lot more about that strategy during the episode. And he just has a wealth of knowledge and his attitude towards real estate. You can feel the passion he has, he has for this subject. So you guys are going to really learn a lot. I know I did. I selfishly asked a lot of questions that I want to implement myself. And it was just an overall great conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Yeah. And, you know, Adam didn't start off like he didn't start off his whole real estate journey by buying real estate. He networked with people. He was a caddy um, when at, at different golf clubs and, and things like that. And then he had his own business where he refurbished uh, electronics and things like that. And then he used that capital to buy his deals. So it's definitely been a journey. Um, and I hope that you guys really take a lot away from this, either creating your own business, networking with other investors, and then eventually stepping into the world of real estate. So with that, uh, let's bring him in and get ready for the episode. All right, Adam, welcome to the Money Curious Podcast, man. How you doing? Hey, I'm good, Essien. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Um, look, I'm really excited to get into this. Uh, I know a lot of our audience is really curious about real estate, and now we have Adam, the investor, here with us today. So uh, do you mind just sharing with our audience a little bit about yourself, a little background about your story? Sure. So I am from Cleveland, Ohio. I live in a suburb about 20 minutes east of Cleveland, born and raised here. Um, I started caddying at a golf course at about uh, 11 years old. And the reason I bring that up is, you know, I caddied from about 11 years old till I was about 22 years old and until I was done with college. And I really think, you know, a decade of caddying through multiple country clubs and seeing a lot of influential people really kind of helped, you know, kicked me in gear towards what I wanted to do. I went from, you know, the slacker kid to the kid who was kind of interested in what these guys were doing to the kid who really wanted to get serious and, and make, make something myself and be like one of these guys instead of carrying their bag around. So um, I, I really think the 10 years I had at that golf course were really, influ you know, really influenced me um, throughout my life. So graduated from Kent State with a degree in finance um, in 2012. Um, I was going to go into the financial advising world or possibly financial analyst. Uh, when I actually started a business my senior year of college, I don't typically go too much into this business because it's a little bit boring. It's an online retail, but um, essentially buying used electronics, defective items, getting them repaired and reselling them. So 
Uh, that particular venture was one of many uh, that I tried starting throughout high school and college, but this one kind of, I, I found my niche and, and this one caught on. So uh, I was looking for entry-level finance jobs when this business started to surpass like $50,000 a year. And for me, that was like, well, you know, I woke up one morning and said, I'm not going to go caddy today and try to make a hundred dollars when, you know, I can sit at my computer and make, you know, five fold. So that was a pretty exciting time when I, you know, I said, okay, caddying's over now, you know, are you going to go into the professional world or you're going to go into this uh, entrepreneurial world? And uh, it was pretty shortly after I'd say within six or nine months that uh, business probably doubled. Um, so it was a no brainer at that point. I was going to make more than double uh, what I could in an entry level position if it didn't work out. I can always go back to the uh, corporate, uh, you know, corporate job seeking world. So luckily that that business did do really well. And um, I would say shortly thereafter, maybe a year and a half, two years, I bought my first rental property. I didn't always know I was going to be buying a uh, rental property, but um, I did know that the business I had was great, but it was not a sure thing. Um, and if I went into the corporate world, you can find a great corporate job, but that's never a short thing. Companies go out of business, layoffs. Mm. Um, what I did know, and partly through caddying and listening to a few real estate guys, was real estate was kind of the ticket to you know, freedom. You, people always need a place to live. Uh, you're always going to be able to rent the property. So it's almost, it, there's no surefire business, but real estate is about as close as it gets, in my opinion. So I kind of knew I wanted to get all my eggs going in that basket. That way, if anything were to happen to my uh, internet business, I'd be okay. Nice. Wow. So I've actually, I've never golfed before, like at, at an actual golf course. I've done mini golf, but I mean, it's not really the same, right? So it's I've never been a, is it really? <laughs> it can be. For, for a game that's supposed to be fun, it's frustrating. <laughs> as a, so as a caddy, I know the stereotype with the golf is that it's an excellent networking um, opportunity if you're able to, to go into it, right? So from your perspective, uh, what type of conversations did you hear and the types of people that, that you, uh, you caddied for, how did they make their money? If they, if they were, if they were really wealthy, was it through real estate or was it more on the business side and they invested their money into real estate after that? So I would say the amount of real estate investors at uh, e either one of these country clubs was the minority. Uh, there were only a few, mm. uh, well, there were probably more, but uh, they don't all play golf. Some of them, you know, don't, don't, go on the golf course at all. So the ones I listened to, you had a lot of lawyers, doctors, attorneys, mm -hmm. business owners, you know, your standard country club stuff. So when I heard a lot of that, I always knew, you know, 10 years of schooling came with the doctor route or the attorney route. And, you know, that that's just not for me. So when I heard real estate, I was like, you know, there's no no higher education uh, on the real estate sector. So you can essentially, you know, don't need any schooling for that. So that kind of always stuck with me. Um, I didn't know, uh, you know, what capacity or how well these real estate guys were doing. Uh, I always assumed the doctor and the attorneys were probably better off. Uh, but, you know, as you get older, you realize, you know, I'm walking my, down my street on a Tuesday afternoon and, and, you know, we live in a pretty decent neighborhood. I got my, you know, forever home and all that. And no, no cars are in the driveway. All these, you know, doctors and lawyers are all at work. And I guarantee they're probably looking at me walking my dog on a Tuesday afternoon saying, what the hell does that guy do? So, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I think I think it's pretty cool to to be able to have the flexibility to be able to do that stuff. And, and the only way you can is if you work for yourself. Right, right. And I do. And then you said you had this entrepreneurial mindset, which I really appreciate. I think maybe those that study finance in college or are just more like lean into that, into that um, mindset a little bit more, have that opportunity to like take a little bit more risks. Myself, my background's in engineering and I'm very logical, very like structured in my thinking. And I'm 
take a lot of risks. And so when I hear about people like starting their own business, I'm like, oh my God, that's so much work at the beginning. Um, how do I make it last? Like how long before I start seeing a profit? And it seems like the networking opportunities that you had being in that caddy position allowed you to kind of eliminate maybe some of those like negative thoughts and be like, you know, I think I can make a business out of some of, out of, um, I think you said refurbishing like, or, or repairing uh, electronics and things like that. And then um, from that came the fact that you realized quickly that you needed another income stream. You didn't know how long it was going to last and then stumbled upon real estate or learned more about real estate. So I do appreciate that your kind of mindset and the progress that you went through it um, to pinpoint maybe what's, what was going to secure the bag in a way. So yeah. tell us a little bit more about um, your first, like how you first stumbled upon real estate. Was it some like a mentor or did you just from those conversations that you had with those um, with the people you networked? Um, is that how you kind of chose to hone in on real estate for like 100%? So I, Early on, I was probably about 12 years old. My mom had uh, purchased one of those real estate back then. It was, you know, books on tape uh, and she mm -hmm. did like 12 hours in the car and did the whole thing. And, you know, she bought a house uh, in the ghetto of Cleveland. It was a complete flop. Uh, it didn't work out at all. And she never did it again. So uh, that didn't inspire me to do real estate. But being a young guy, really not thinking about what I want to do with my life, it, it stuck with me that that was an option. So I would say that was like a really early seed, even though she didn't go with it uh, and it didn't work out for her. That just I, I remembered, hey, this real estate thing is out there um, from that uh, came the country club caddying. So I was exposed to, you know, some sophisticated, well to do people who were doing uh, essentially that. So, you know, it kind of reinforced the idea that, wow, you know, this real estate thing is out there and maybe I can do it. But it wasn't until. Oh, early on in college, when I said, you know, whether I go corporate world, whether I go into the entrepreneurial world, real estate uh, is going to be my ticket to essentially, you know, financial freedom. So I, I, you know, I figured it would take me into my 40s or 50s to get there because I was you know, running houses from landlords who maybe own 20 houses. And they said we bought a house a year and 20 years later, you know, so I accelerated the path. Uh, quite a bit compared to what I thought it would be on. But um, either way, I knew no matter if it was one house a year or 10 houses a year, I was just going to kind of keep plugging away with my savings and put in real estate. So with your, with your real estate, I'm assuming, I remember you talking to us in the beginning that you've been doing this business for about 10 years or so? Yeah, about nine, nine and a half years. Yeah. Nine and a half years. Okay. So during those years, what investing strategy do you think served you the best? And when did you make the conversion from your first initial strategy, whatever you started with on that first property to the strategy that you're sticking to uh, these days? Yeah, so my first property and probably my first four or five properties were mm -hmm. properties that were on the MLS close to market value. Maybe I got a decent deal on them, uh, more carpet and paint type jobs. So I would buy these houses in the Cleveland market for maybe around $50,000. I put about 5,000 into them, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. And then maybe I'd pull a thousand in a month for rent. Um, so at the time that would cash flow maybe around 150 or $200 a month. And I thought that was great, but I, I kept leaving, you know, five to $8,000 of my own money in these deals, plus the down payment, uh, which sometimes was as much as 20% on a conventional loan. So, you know, I was buying maybe one or two houses a year. Uh, I'd be sinking on average probably ten to twenty thousand dollars into each property, and and that money would stay in the property. So you know, I had four or five houses, but I was constantly going broke um, mm -hmm. and struggling to figure out how to buy the next house aside from the income I was producing from my other other business. So 
I stumbled across uh, the Burr strategy, which is now kind of famous, but back in 2015, 2016, it was kind of more a conceptual thing than a strategy. So, you know, I, I read about it and, you know, I'm like, what is this refinancing thing? I didn't really understand how it quite worked. Uh, but, you know, the more I read this, I decided, you know, this is this sounds pretty good. So I looked for a disaster house, uh, got a great deal on it, uh, paid cash through a through a hard, hard money lender. Uh, the rehab on that house was was a nightmare because it was my first time going through any kind of major construction. So I spent probably about 40 percent more than I should have uh, just through firing wow. contractors, getting new people in there. So, you know, it was a it was a big beast of a project to take on for my first one. But, you know, after about seven or eight months, rehabbed it, got the tenant in there, refinanced it. Um, so at that time, I took about ten thousand dollars of cash out of the refinance, put it in my pocket. Hard money lender was paid back. And then I had a home value of about one hundred and thirty thousand dollars and my loan balance was only 90. So you're sitting there with forty thousand dollars in equity, some cash in your pocket and cash flowing about three hundred and fifty, four hundred dollars a month. And I realized, you know, what I was doing prior to the Burr strategy was going to take me a lot longer and it was going to cost me a lot more of my own money. So I, I knew right there that that was it. And after that, it was nothing but Burr strategies going forward and you get better at them. So the numbers uh, typically improve. So before we move on, just for our listeners, do you mind just uh, explaining the steps of the Burr strategy and what exactly it is? Yeah, so Burr stands for B-R-R-R-R. It's the Buy, Rehab, Rent, and Refinance. So in order to make that strategy work, you can't really buy a house at market value or you have to see some sort of future value by adding bedrooms or, you know, you have to, you have to figure out a way to get a deal on a house. That way you can try to get your money back out uh, when you refinance. So, for example, you buy a house for $50,000. It costs $30,000 to rehab. So you have $80,000 into this property. Uh, and then on the backside, it would appraise for, let's say, $130,000. The bank will allow you to finance up to 70% of that new value. So you can essentially pay your hard money lender back or get your funds replenished. Sometimes you get a little bit of cash back once in a while. Maybe you'll have to come uh, out of pocket a couple thousand at closing. But at the end of the day, uh, you have a lot of equity in the property. The property is typically brand new, rehabbed, ready to go. Uh, therefore, it catches higher rent. And when it catches higher rent with nicer things, the tenants tend to stay longer. So there's a lot of benefits uh, to the birth strategy aside from the equity and the cash flow. Gotcha. So, so Adam, it seems like in the beginning of you purchasing your first property or investment property, um, and, and then the second one, it seemed like the ball was growing, right? Like your portfolio was growing, but it wasn't growing as rapidly as it was maybe when you were doing birth, the birth strategy. And um, I'm curious to know, like, how long was it taking you in the very beginning to acquire your, from the first property you got to the second one, since you were putting down like 20%. Um, and usually that was most of your own money. Was there like, was it like a, a one year in between one and the, and the second purchase? Or was it longer? Was it shorter? Can you kind of give us insight to that? So roughly, if my memory serves, the first property I purchased, um, and I think I came out of pocket, maybe 15,000 between the purchase and the rehab. Uh, the second property I purchased less than six months later, but that's because I had like a $75,000 savings from uh, my online business. So at the time I was like, man, 75 grand, I'm just going to crush it and keep going and going. Well, that 75 grand dried up really fast. So by the third <laughs> property, I was like, well, you know, I kind of got to play the waiting game. You know, I couldn't do the third property. So I would say one to two properties a year uh, is what I averaged for the first three or so years. 
Uh, after I started doing the Burr strategy, I, I think I went up to maybe six properties. And then for about wow. three years in a row, I was doing 10 to 12 properties a year, which, you know, it was more than I can handle. I, I was I was over leveraged. Uh, you know, there was a lot of stress during that time. So I wouldn't <laughs> recommend going to that level unless you really have a good team in place, because in hindsight, you know, I was fine doing maybe six to eight properties a year. That would that would have been just fine for my stress level. Okay, gotcha. And also the price range of these properties that you were acquiring. Um, can you give us that range so we have a better insight into, um, you know, what is it that you were targeting? What kind of properties you were targeting? So I'm in Cleveland, the Midwest. So a lot of these numbers would shock anyone all along the West Coast or in, in the South or really up along the East Coast as well. But, uh, you know, I would say on average, uh, $50,000 was a pretty average purchase price for C plus B minus communities and in the suburbs of Cleveland. So I stay away from the A communities because you're just going to pay a premium for the house. Cash flow is going to re be really low. And then I stay away from the really bad communities as well. So, you know, right in the middle is kind of where my sweet spot is. Um, so $50,000 purchase price, maybe $30,000 rehab price. So $80,000 all in would be an average deal. $50,000. Yeah, you're right. That does shock me. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. In, in today's world, that's not really the case, but this was 2013, 2015, you know, so. Okay. I mean, I mean, if we really think about it, even in 2013, 2015, I'm from the East Coast. I'm from New Jersey. I don't mm -hmm. think I can buy a property that was, you know, even back then around that price range. So it is, it's still shocking. And yeah, maybe the prices have gone up a little bit now, but oh my goodness, that's definitely, um, if you know the market and you know Cleveland, like, like you do. Um, you can definitely um, take advantage of of all that and and really propel your real estate portfolio forward. So, yeah, oh and a real, real quick spinoff yeah. on that. When I first started real estate investing, I was listening to a podcast called the Real Estate Guys uh, podcast. And these were really uh, older savvy guys done a ton of real estate. And their mantra was you need to invest where the growth is. So the Austin, Texas, the Phoenix, the Miami. So I'm sitting there before I ever purchased property thinking no matter what happens, I got to get out of Cleveland. Cleveland is not a growth market. Uh, I need to get on these high appreciating markets. But then if you fast forward 10 years later, I have everyone calling me from the West coast and New York and saying, how do I get into Cleveland? Please tell me how. So <laughs> it's just funny, you know, that, that appreciation thing is real. Uh, but if you can't cash flow uh, in New Jersey or, or in California, then it doesn't make sense. So. Right. I think I need to move. <laughs> God, that's incredible. Um, so it, just one more one more question on the Bray strategy. So you've done countless of these deals at this point. Um, how exactly are you financing these deals? Is, are you putting up your own money still or using? I know a lot of people use um, no interest credit cards or hard money. How exactly are you using? How, how exactly are you financing your birds these days? So early on in real estate, I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to do the hard money thing. I was producing a decent amount of cash for my other business. And I was like, maybe I can self-finance through the help of banks. But, you know, I thought 12, you know, 15% interest, you know, why, why pay that? But uh, I finally gave in once I wanted to accelerate. I met a hard money lender um, through Bigger Pockets. actually. I still work with him on occasion today. Uh, and that's how I started going from, you know, two to three properties a year to 10 properties a year. So if, if you find a good enough deal, uh, don't be scared of high interest, hard money lenders, because at the end of the day, that's going to accelerate your business. Um, today, I'm actually financing most of my deals through private uh, financing. So I've established a track record. I've networked with enough people now where um, I'm just essentially saying this is what I'm going to offer you. Typically 10% uh, somewhere in that range is what I offer my private investors. Uh, and it's not that I don't use hard money. I use him to fill in the gaps. But for the most part, I'm finding uh, that I can fund everything through private investors. 
So I've always been curious about having private money uh, or using private money to, f to fund your deals. So is this something that you use for long term long term financing? So are they, are they an equity partner or are they just more for short term financing? You're paying them 10 percent of their money for the period that you're waiting to refinance them out. Typically, uh, it's all a just a percentage return. So no equity partners. It's usually a one year or less loan. So um, as we get into bigger commercial deals, I, I would consider taking on some equity partners. But mostly, once we buy something, we rehab it, we get the tenant in at that point, we can take it to the bank and the bank will put us into a long term loan. So that's when the private investor gets paid back, which is 12 months or less. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And then I don't, I have to keep on asking on, on break strategies. No. I, I love this strategy. Um, so do you mind just telling the audience, if you're comfortable, the numbers on your favorite burst strategy you've done in the last nine years or so? Yeah. So um, I purchased a home on auction.com for roughly $32,000. And, and the good thing about auction.com or a lot of these auction sites, um, I guess good thing or bad thing, depending on what you're looking for, is you cannot get into these homes. Therefore, the risk is increased. But by the time I was starting to look at these houses, I had already gone through some really big rehabs. So um, not being able to see the inside of the property didn't really concern me at that point. So you get some really good deals on there. I bought a house for about thirty-two thousand. Uh, this wasn't a bad rehab at all. I, I want to say it was right around thirty thousand. So maybe sixty thousand dollars all in. The house appraised for one hundred twenty thousand. So. Again, these are flip houses. If you were to flip them, you know, they would be a great profit. But the idea is not to flip every house you buy. You want to hold on to them. Otherwise, when the market dries up, you don't have anything. You know, flipping businesses is not anything that is substantial. Mm -hmm. um, so after that, uh, the 120000 minus 60000 meant that I had $60,000 in equity. On the refinance, I took home $20,000. So 20,000 in your pocket cash free because you don't wow. you don't pay any taxes on refinance. You only pay taxes when you sell the property. Uh, at, at that point, it was like a $750 a month cash flowing property because it was just a perfect buy in a, in a city with low property taxes and, and rent prices had gone up a lot over the past few years. So um, you get 20 grand in your pocket, roughly $40,000 in equity and then $750 a month in cash flow. And those deals are, are some of the best ones that I've had, but there are quite a few of them that are you know in that area. Wow. wow. Very nice. Thank you for sharing that. That definitely inspired me. I'm, I'm one that is, like I said, I'm more, I'm, I'm not one for taking risks. And so if I can't see the property on the inside, I'm like, Oh my gosh, should I go for it? I, I don't have experience doing this. I've haven't done a renovation before um, and haven't built up the team of like getting a general contractor and, and so on to be able to do that kind of work. And so maybe at the beginning, yeah, it might be a little bit scary, but I think once you, if you, if you run your numbers, right, and you can get that kind of cash flow at the end of it, then like, why not take that leap and do it? So yeah, and I didn't do that until I would say at least 10 or 12 deals. I didn't buy a house sight unseen. Oh, okay. Gotcha. It's, wow. It took a while to get there. Yeah. So you wow. said you went through a few major rehabs before you um, before you bought this property. Would you recommend someone doing a flip first and then moving on to Burr? Or do you think it's it's right into a Burr for your first Burr, I guess? So I, I was flipping a lot of properties at that time, too. And a lot of it was out of necessity. I, I just needed to generate more cash for, mm. you know, certain properties that didn't work out. If you had to leave money in the deal, you'd still have to generate some cash. So I don't think flipping is necessarily a bad thing. But once you have enough cash to feel comfortable and have uh, something, some kind of nest egg to sit on where you can live and, and, and do your normal expenses. At that point, I would just try to do everything uh, rental. But, you know, once in a while, we'll come across a property. That is a great deal and we will flip it. Um, so I'm not totally against flips. Um, but in terms of 
I'm sorry, your question was whether you should flip first. I, I don't think flipping first is necessary, but definitely take on a smaller rehab project before a bigger one. I mean, you, you can go with both feet in and go for the big one first, but I, just like anything, baby steps help. So you took a lot of baby steps right before, I'm going to say baby steps in relation to now that you're in commercial real estate, right? You were doing a lot of residential uh, property deals and buys. So can you share with us how and when you kind of took that leap and said, I'm going to buy commercial real estate? And I think, um, yeah, I guess, can you also give the definition of what it means to buy commercial real estate? Because some properties like apartment complexes would then be considered commercial. Yeah. So commercial real estate is essentially defined by the banks as any properties that is five units and up. So any fourplexes, duplexes, that'll be a residential loan. Anything above that, you would get a commercial loan on it. Um, you know, I, I didn't think going into real estate that I would be doing commercial in the capacity that I am now. I thought maybe I would be buying a hundred single family homes. And after that, um, I would buy, you know, some apartment buildings. Um, so I got to the point where I had a portfolio of about 45 single family homes. We had done maybe 70 deals uh, between flips and, and rentals. Um, this was 2018. Um, I had my first child. So, you know, working at home was much more difficult with a child. Uh, so I started looking for office space that I could like lease out and get away from the house to get some work done. So when I was looking for office space to lease, I came across a building that was for sale right in my, uh, my hometown, really trendy part of town. We got this little downtown area with coffee shops and bars and Long story short, I ended up uh, purchasing that building and essentially office hacking it. So I, I lease out around 800 square feet of that building to myself uh, and then 4,500 square feet goes to about four or five different tenants. So at that time, I said, you know, office space, I probably was never going to do. But that building worked out so well that uh, I bought another one that was like a mixed use building. So some retail space, some office space uh, that worked out really well. So I just kept going with it. So in the past uh, three and a half years, uh, we're getting ready to close on our fifth commercial space, gone a little bit bigger each time. And it's kind of just shifted my gears into commercial real estate in a way that I didn't really think I would be doing, at least at this stage of my life. Uh, wow, so with, with commercial real estate, uh, just for the audience and obviously for ourselves too, could you explain the main differences in terms of getting financing for commercial deals versus residential deals? Yeah, so the funny thing about financing commercial deals is it's actually a little bit easier to get a half a million dollar loan on a commercial property than it is for a $100,000 single family home. Prior to the 2008 crash, single family, you know, residential loans, conventional loans, super easy to get. Um, they had stated income. They didn't do any checking. Uh, and, you know, all this led to the crash. Well, after that happened, they introduced legislation that made all these banks accountable for these loans they were going to give. So essentially, they can get audited by the government and they have to make sure they fit these ratios and the criteria that the government set for them. So that's why it's much more difficult to get these conventional and single family homes because they have to abide by the rules that are in front of them. On the commercial side, uh, the banks do what they want, not to a certain extent. They don't have to abide by the same rules. So uh, it's more of a relationship-based lending. So when when a bank can get to know you, can realize that you know what you're doing, uh, they're much much more likely to give you a loan because uh, they don't have to fit into the special box that the residential and the conventional loans have. So these aren't the Chase banks and the key banks of the world. These are small banks in your community that have the ability to work with a guy like me, who is a small-time investor, essentially. Um, not the guy buying a $40 million apartment building that chases and key banks want to work with. So you find a local bank in your area, try to grow with them, which is what I have done. And, and loans uh, become easier and easier as they see, you know, what you're doing. Wow. 
So I, I'm looking at your Instagram here um, on the side and you had shared a post here, types of businesses that lease my properties, uh, meaning your commercial properties. And some of them, I'm just gonna list a few of them, a hair salon, a wellness center, um, an attorney, a chiropractor, a coffee roast. All these are businesses that for the most part would be there for a while. They're not gonna probably have just a one year lease, right? So I'm assuming the differences, there are differences between um, real estate leasing and commercial leasing. Can you kind of go into those details as well as to how, what's like the minimum, uh, I guess, lease term you uh, offer your, your businesses there? Yeah. So like for residential single family homes, a year is pretty standard. Um, mm -hmm. And in the commercial side, I would say three year minimum is pretty standard. Uh, I buy a lot of buildings that have smaller units, you know, 800, 900 square feet. So you're not going to necessarily need to lock those tenants into like a three or five year lease because it's a it's a lower investment. Um, not too, you know, you're always concerned about vacancy, but not as concerned as, you know, for instance, we have a restaurant that we leased out. We wouldn't go anything uh, less than five years on that because it was a massive overhaul. It's a big space. Uh, it cost us money to get it ready for them. Um, so, you know, we required a five year lease on that. So I would say the big differences in leasing is the amount of years is typically longer in commercial. And, and one of the things a lot of people don't know is, you know, depending on what state you live in, it's difficult to evict a tenant for not paying. And certainly they can play the game and stay for a long time before they do get evicted. In the commercial world, if someone doesn't pay me on the 31st of the month, I can change their keys on the first. So you don't have to go through all the fair housing and, and a lot of the stuff that is involved in the residential side. So the risk is lower in the fact that you can get them out of there right away and get that place back on the market. So did you have any trouble with vacancy during the pandemic or were you not buying uh, commercial real, real estate during the pandemic? So the the first commercial building I bought that I office hacked, I bought shortly before the pandemic, maybe a year mm -hmm. or so before the pandemic started. And right as we went to lease that, uh, you know, COVID did start. So. Uh, we didn't have any any tenants for about two or three months uh, after we put up our, our marketing material. But um, pretty much after, you know, COVID was still in, in its height, you know, but people were starting to realize, like, you know, at, at first you go down the streets and it's like the old west and there's cobwebs blowing down the streets. Right. But, you know, after everyone got over after everyone got over that and realized, like, you could, like, leave your house, uh, businesses started to call. Um, there were a lot of businesses that were probably on the sidelines just waiting for things to shake out. But yeah, so we filled our, our units, uh, all six of them, in roughly six months after we started marketing it. Uh, so again, I got to ask, you keep on saying we, we, we when you're uh, when you're buying these commercial real estate deals. Like, are you partnering with a bunch of other people? Because I remember listening to Bigger Pockets, and I remember them saying it's actually the norm to not necessarily bring all of your own cash to fund these deals for a commercial loan. Like, do you usually have other partners with you that to help fund the down payment and any other costs that go that associated with it? So my wife always gets on me for saying we, because it, it, it truly is I, but my wife oh. helps me a ton with my, my wife helps me a ton with the leasing. I have these employees that work for me nonstop. Uh, you know, so I, I say we, cause we kind of approach it from a team, but yeah, it is I, and, and I do have a partner on one commercial building um, this was a, a deal that they brought to me and asked me to partner on. Essentially, we're 50-50 partners and I do. I manage the rehab and then I actually manage the building as well. And he is just a, a money side guy. So, yeah, I do say we on everything. I probably need to break that habit because it does confuse people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're staying humble. So you recognize the effort that other people are doing as well. So it's good. It's not just me. That's for sure. Yeah. So um, I do have a question for you in terms of, you know, bringing in another, another partner and you have one with one of your commercial uh, properties. 
So my mindset, I'm, I'm, I like to be very independent. I like to be able to prove to myself that I can do things on my own. Um, and I know to scale to larger properties, um, whether that be residential properties or commercial properties, there is that kind of hump uh, of sorts to get over when you bring on more people to help you with a deal. Because it kind of feels like, oh, you know, I wasn't able to do it myself. Um, why was I uh, unable to do that? So when you brought in this investor, even though he came to you, uh, maybe if the tables were flipped and you had gone to him, um, would you feel some type of way? And if you if you were to feel some type of way like that, um, what would you say um, to get over that that icky feeling of, oh, man, I couldn't do it myself? Well, I, I wish I could give you an answer, but I struggle with those feelings as well, because, um, you know, I, I honestly do want to do everything myself. I just like to answer to me. Um, the partnership I, I had mixed feelings about uh, for the a lot of the reasons you mentioned, uh, not not to mention sharing the equity, sharing the income, but also you know maybe having someone else that you need to prove or answer to or make sure that you're doing a good job. I, I've always worked for myself, so that was a little struggle for me. And and my partner's great, you know he's not down my throat about anything, but I still feel like you know I'm sent. He, he's from California, so he is not local. So I want to make sure he's happy and I want to show him proof of what I'm doing. So every month I'm preparing documents and sending them to him, just showing him this is what's going on. And honestly, I'd rather not do that. But I understand as I get into bigger deals, my money is tied up in other projects that having 50% of a $2 million building is better than having 0% of that $2 million building. So I do have to get over that same right. mentality that you're speaking of and realize that, yeah, you, you aren't going to necessarily build it on your own, um, but I would love to. Man, I, 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 I feel the same that. way. It, it's hard for me to like want to answer somebody because I know this guy in Massachusetts is doing a lot of good. He's probably like a year or two older than me. He's doing a lot of commercial real estate, but he's it's a he's a syndicator, right? So he has so many other investors he has to answer to. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'd rather just only answer myself. And the, honestly, the biggest thing for me is that like I'm not experienced enough in syndication or in real estate in general for me to take someone else's money like that and have them be equity partners for the whole length of the deal. Right. I don't want to be responsible for someone losing tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in a deal. You know, that's another thing that really scares me. Do you struggle with that feeling as well, even with being a 50 50 partner? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, but with me having 50% in the deal, you know, that's a lot of uh, interest for me to make sure it's a good one. And it was, you know, we knew going into it that it wasn't a problem. But, you know, as I continue to raise money, there's some people that I talk to that are really happy with, you know, 10% interest that I pay. Sometimes I give a 1% point at closing as, a, you know, just for closing fees. Uh, but then there's other people that I talk to that say, you know, we want a bigger bite of this. And, and for now, I've been able to raise enough private equity, uh, private funds at the 10% rate. But if I have two or three projects going on, I might circle back with some of these people who said they want a bigger piece and and offer it to them because, you know, like I said before, you can either do the deal or do no deal. I'd rather be part of a, you know, a small part of a big deal than do no deal at all. Yeah, all right. exactly. And a lot of the people who are, are big time, a lot bigger than I am, have partners everywhere. So, you know, if, if these guys are, are smart and they're doing it, you know, I, I realize that it's probably somewhere I need to go, you know, as we continue to do bigger deals. OK, so we talk a lot about real estate. Um, and we are, we're, we're like here, like little kids loving all the information you've been giving to us about real estate, but we are also super curious about, um, if you're invested in other things besides real estate, like, are you also kind of, um, gearing up to diversify your portfolio in terms of looking at the stock, uh, at the stock markets, investing in, in, in those types of deals? Are you into ETFs, index funds, um, NFTs. You know, you built up a business, 
yeah or <laughs> nfts bitcoin all those stuff like all that stuff crypto you know um and then uh you said you you had a business before i'm not sure if you're still um running that business now but um are you looking to grow a future business can you share uh with us a little bit about that sure so first on the uh the internet business where i just uh sell refurbished electronic equipment um, I still have that business. When I first started real estate investing, I was spending about 80% of my day on that business and about 20% of my day on real estate. But today it's it's reversed. 80% uh, of my time devotes to real estate and the rest is to that business. Um, that business was very lucrative, especially for about a three-year period. Uh, we did over a million dollars in revenue on online sales for more than three years straight. Um, it's come down considerably for various factors, competition, less time that I'm putting into it. So in short, uh, I'm, I'm not winding this business down, but I'm certainly not trying to grow it at the time uh, at this time. Real estate uh, is where my passion is. That's where I'm putting most of my focus and energy. And luckily, you know, it took about seven, six, seven years of real estate to say I don't need this Internet business anymore. But at the same time, I'm not going to walk away from it. Uh, but uh, luckily, if, if, if it were to fail, I'd be OK with the real estate. Um, and then the second part of your question, can you remind me? Yeah. So are you invested in like NFTs, crypto, um, the stock market? Are you looking to diversify outside of real estate anytime soon? Or if you already are? Um, so I, I, I'm a big diversification guy. So I, I am all for diversification. But only thing I have in stock market is my retirement fund. So I do put a lot of money into my retirement fund every year, but I don't do any day trading in terms of stocks or anything like that. Um, I did some day trading in, in high school um, and then I did some in college and then I lost thousands of dollars both times. So uh, I realized that penny stocks and and uh, really speculative things that I tried to you know dabble in back then are not worth it and slow and steady wins the race. So um, that's why I just kind of sink money into my retirement fund and leave it at that. Um, but I did throw a very small amount of money in crypto two years ago. I'm not really a believer in in crypto, maybe someone uh, is going to prove me wrong. Uh, it's already proven to make a, a lot of people a lot of money. But again, that's a really speculative asset, in my opinion. So I'm not going to put anything more than Vegas money uh, into something like that. And I threw some money in there. Uh, I'm going to not drop in and out of it. I'm going to let it ride for the next you know, five years and see what happens. I think All that's right. a smart move. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, I know there's a bunch opinion. of crypt I know there's a bunch of crypto people on here and NFT people on here that are probably screaming at their computer right now because I've read it all, I've seen it all, but you know, <laughs> teach their own. Yeah, I agree. Um yeah. as we start winding down a little bit here, we're almost done. There's one thing I I really want to ask you. You're nearly 10 years into this business. What would you say to someone who's just starting out? Either they just bought between one and five properties themselves, they're in the same boat as you. They had to always reinvest their own money or maybe someone who just read a few books about real estate. They're really excited. haven't bought a deal. What would you say to that person starting out and see you uh, at, at your stage and what type of trajectory should they expect to try and get to that stage? So the most important thing is to actually start, whether it's through house hacking uh, or just buying a, you know, a duplex or a single family home. Starting is the key because most people don't get over that first hump. And I would say the people that do get over that first hump eventually find a way to accelerate that if that's their goal. Maybe, you know, they don't buy houses right away. But, you know, once you get that first house, the ball starts rolling. The snowball effect of, you know, the appreciation and the equity pay down starts. If you get another house that continues on and so on and so forth. So from the houses I bought in 2013, uh, you know, I didn't think at the time that I would be able to 
reap the benefits of these houses in the way that I have. Uh, so some of those houses I have sold because, you know, they accumulated over $100,000 in equity. Some of them I've refinanced. So once you have the properties, uh, the time starts ticking and the values start going up and it really just accelerates things. So get that first property under your belt. And after that, things should be a little bit easier. Uh, I wouldn't say easy, but easier than getting your first one done. I totally can uh, relate to that because when I first got into real estate, it was I bought my first property six months after graduating from college. I got there. They had this special loan program where they would be able to fund the uh, the down payment for me. So only I put down like a few thousand dollars for the uh, for a little bit for the for the for the uh, closing costs and the uh, appraisal inspection, whatever. And after I got the first property, I'm actually sitting in it right now, the condo. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God. I uh, I just bought a property. I just bought some real estate. This is because I, I was reading about it for so long. I was listening to podcasts for so long. I was touring houses for such a long time. And then once I got that first deal, I was like, oh, this isn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And then I got my first tenants to for, for it was a house hack. I had, I had to rent out the other two rooms. I was like, oh, so this is what it feels like. And then I got the first rent payment. I was like, oh, my. Oh wow, this is this is actually pretty cool. Let me do this again. <laughs> and I it, 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 it clicks. Yeah, it clicks. And like for some reason, I don't know why, but the check that you get on the first of the month coming from rent, it feels just as good, if not better, than the check you get from your W2, no matter how much it is. I don't know what it is. Maybe that's just me. I don't know if you, you can uh you uh, agree with that, but for me personally, it felt so good on the first to collect that those rent checks every single month. Yeah, well, they always say, you know, self-employed people would rather work 80, 80 hours a week for themselves than 40 hours a week for someone else. So something about making your own money from your own business, you know, it really gets uh, people going. Certainly, you know, I, I can definitely relate to the feeling. I remember it well. Yeah, I mean, when I bought my first house hack, after I moved in, I got the keys, got the first rent payment. I called Essien and I was like, I'm ready to buy my next one, but I have to wait like, a year or so because I wanted to do another house hack. And I was like, I'm ready. And I was looking at properties on Redfin and Zillow on MLS. And I was just, I was like, I just need to accumulate a bit more capital. And then I'm ready to pull the trigger and get the next one. So uh, I can relate to the fact that it's super, super addicting. And I can't wait for um, in the future to grow even further, grow even faster. Right. I can just buy a property next month or in six months or something like that. So, uh, And it can yeah, accelerate fast too. I understand. Yeah. I understand being uh, being impatient and wanting things. You know, I'm only I'm 34 um, as of last week, and you know, four years ago I was still buying single family homes. You know, kind of running out of liquidity and waiting for this house to sell so I can you know get money from this house. And then four years later, you know, we're buying you know upwards of a million dollar commercial deals. So you know, it can really accelerate fast. And a lot of that is because of all these single family homes that I've purchased over the years are now sitting assets and you can use those for leverage into other deals. So as time passes, you know, it becomes easier with the, with the house as long as you hold on to them. Seems like being patient and making sure you're doing your due diligence in terms of finding the right deals that work for you um, are the key to success, early success and later success. So definitely thank you for, for giving us that little piece of insight there. You're welcome. All right. So I think that brings us to the end. And Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I enjoyed it. I know Essie enjoyed it. And yeah, this is a lot of fun, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, likewise. You guys keep up the good work. You're doing good stuff. Thank you. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. So Adam, I did want to take this time to um, give yourself a plug. Where can people find you? And if you're looking for partners or investors, um, you know, be sure to share that here too. 
Sure. So my website is cleinvest.com. You can get all my information on there. Um, you can always check me out on Instagram. It's Adam the Investor. Um, I'll share a lot of progress pictures and videos and things of current uh, and past projects on there. Awesome. Well, great. Thank you so much, Adam. I know that I've been looking at your Instagram account. I'm like, he's on his ninth flip or his is a uh, ninth burr and it's incredible to see your progress. So can't wait to, to get there myself soon, hopefully. Keep at it, you will. Yeah. All right, Adam, well, thanks again. And that's a wrap.